Well, the last day or so has seen an extraordinary turn of events in Russia. The Russian President Vladimir Putin has survived an immediate threat to his power after the leader of the Wagner mercenary group agreed to end his mutiny against the Russian army. Yevgeny Prigozhin called off his Wagner troops' march to Moscow late Saturday night after negotiations with Putin's ally and Belarus's leader, Alexander Lukashenko. He also agreed to leave Russia for Belarus, and the Kremlin has said it will not pursue punishment against him or his Wagner fighters. But there are many questions that are unanswered about what's happened. Well, to unpack some of them, I'm joined now by a panel of experts. Joining me live are Vitaly Shevchenko, who's from BBC Monitoring in the newsroom with me in London. Meanwhile, Jay McGlynn is a researcher at the War Studies Department at King's College London. Jade is also the author of Memory Makers, The Politics of Past in Russia and Russia's War. She joins us from Oxfordshire. And Justin Crump is a military veteran and chief executive of risk intelligence firm Sibline. Thank you all so much for joining us. Vitaly, I want to start with you first, please. A key question that we're getting from viewers here at BBC News is just remind us exactly what is happening in, in Russia right now. Well, there's a certain sense of things de-escalating and tensions easing in Russia. We're seeing reports uh, from various regions in southwestern Russia of uh, restrictions being lifted, in particular restrictions on traffic, roads being reopened. And in Rostov, which is the, 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 the biggest, the main city taken by Wagner yesterday, uh, the only thing that reminds local residents of, of the dramatic events yesterday is the torn-up tarmac in, in central parts of the city. That's because of all the tanks that drove and, uh, up and down uh, those streets uh, yesterday. Um, tomorrow is uh, still going to be a day off in Moscow, but by and large, things seem to be getting back to normal and, and looking at state television, for example. It it's, seems to be business as usual. At least that's the impression that the Kremlin's media machine wants to give to its viewers. With regards to the Kremlin's media machine, it's always portrayed Vladimir Putin as a, as a man of power, as a man in control and, and also of stability. So, so, Justin, people are then asking, why did the Wagner group turn against Russia, turn against, at the end of the day, the person that created the group, or it certainly at least gave it its power? It's a great question. The, I think problems of the, the Russian military throughout 2022 are pretty obvious, and eventually they increasingly had to turn to a private military company, and Wagner in particular, to build out their efforts when they ran into real trouble late last year. So, of course, as PMC grew, it gained greater power, uh, and within that, it was arguing about the prosecution of the conflict. Uh, Prigozhin's always argued that the conflict was not being prosecuted correctly and clearly was not getting on with the senior military leadership. So you almost had two militaries at that point that were in deep rivalry. And a few weeks ago, within part of that power struggle, um, the Russian MOD effectively demanded that under a new law, the PMC contractors, the soldiers working for Wagner, the mercenaries, would have to join the regular Russian military. They'd have to accept regular Russian military contracts. And that not only struck at Prigozhin's new power base, but also, of course, at the members of the Wagner group. And that seems to have really escalated the tensions over the last few weeks. And it's notable that Prigozhin's uh, actions in the last 24 hours were obviously quite premeditated, um, had built up over a period of time, stockpiled weaponry and things like that. So this has been running for quite a while, intensified over the last few weeks. 
and you know to what extent it was a gambit for them to uh, overcome this need for them to take on these contracts, Progozin protecting himself, protecting his power base, is still unclear. But that was certainly the genesis of the extraordinary actions we've seen over the weekend. And Justin, we've obviously had a lot of focus on Wagner and on Yevgeny Prigozhin, but it's worth noting that that is not the only PMC, the only mercenary group being operated in and around Russia, is it? No, it's by far the most prominent, but a lot of the oligarchs have, have built their own um, PMCs. Uh, there's a huge network of these working to greater or lesser extent. Uh, and of course, so Wagner as a flagship one was the biggest problem. Prigozhin uh, was probably the loudest and most outspoken um, leader of a PMC. The rest of us would have kept their heads down a bit more than he has done. So to some extent, maybe there was that desire to make an example uh, of Wagner in particular, to make the others toe the line and prevent the very threat you get when you have large independent PMCs like this that, that can threaten the state authority, especially within such a fractured structure uh, that Russia has, you know, these rival power centers. And of course, really the war allowed the creation of this very strong one and very threatening one, as we've seen. We've been hearing, Jade, in the last few minutes, comments coming out of Russia referencing state TV that say that Vladimir Putin will continue his focus on what he calls the, the special military operation, that he will also convene a regular meeting of the Security Council as well. Our viewers and readers of the live page at BBC News website are, are also wanting to know what else Vladimir Putin will do now as a result of these events. What do we expect to see from him? Well, first of all, we expect to see him being probably a lot more present, um, which ties in with some of the announcements we've just heard. But I think the big question is, what does he do with the top military brass, for example, with the Minister of Defence, Sergei Shoigu, and of course, with the head of the armed forces, um, Gerasimov? And I think that will be the key question, because one of um, Prigozhin's demands, as Justin was just referring to, has been to change um, those in charge of the so-called special military operation, Russia's war on Ukraine. However, if he were to remove them, that would weaken his sort of system quite considerably, given the way that um, it's often quite finely balanced, um, a balance that can sometimes be very easily upset, as we saw yesterday, on competing interests and on managing those competing interests well, which is something that Putin has not been doing um, of late, um, you know, and since since the start of the full-scale invasion. Um, that said, if for him to not do anything would be very difficult because Prigozhin, um, as we saw with some of the um, the welcome that he got um, and the send-off that he had um, in, in Rostov yesterday or in the early hours of this morning, Prigozhin is also, I suppose, a figurehead for an anger that many people and a frustration that many um, in Russia feel, and not just among people, but also among um, certain parts of the elites, that the war is not being fought correctly, that it's not being fought in the right way, and this is tapped into an anti-elitism, this is tapped into a sense of, you know, of, of anti-corruption, which of course, for obvious reasons, has a strong constituency in Russia. So it's a difficult position. I think um, if I were to put myself in his shoes somewhat reluctantly, I would say that probably the most likely option is going to be that whatever happens with Shoigu and um, and the sort of military top brass, so there's going to be an effort to try to distract by going harder within the, the counteroffensive. Uh, sorry, within the, um, the sort of fighting back against the counteroffensive in Ukraine, expect to see sort of many more missile attacks on, on Kiev, not that they've been let up. And this focus on, um, 
trying to show that um, that they can that you know they can succeed they can succeed in the war um, but with morale as it is and even even further destroyed I think that will be a hard task. With regards to that war, there's a question I want to put to you all in a moment with regards to possible ploys or deception that some of our viewers have asked. But, Vitaly, I just want to, to cross to you first. With regards to your role at BBC Monitoring, which monitors language services and media around the world, and in particular from your position with regards to Russia, we know that for, for decades now, Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin has had a, a vice-like grip, increasingly so, on media. I'm interested... To what degree do you think people beyond Rostov-on-Don, beyond Moscow and Voronezh will be aware of what's been happening in the, in the west of the country in recent days? Do you think, for example, in the Siberian hinterlands, people will be aware of, of what's happened and what's taken place? Well, I think anyone with any interest in what is going on in Russia and the world, they will be able to find out uh, what... Uh, Evgeny Prigozhin has been doing over the past couple of days, even though the, the Kremlin's official media machine doesn't really want the Russians to have the complete picture of, of all the confusing uh, events that have taken place. Uh, State TV um, has been doing what it is used to doing, i.e. presenting mainly the good news and downplaying the bad news. And if you were to sit down and watch Russian TV somewhere in the Siberian hinterland, the impression that you're going to get is that, well, nothing to see here. There's been a, a certain bit of trouble, but now things are back to the ordinary. Do not worry. But Russians are still able to access uh, a variety of social media platforms. Even those which are officially banned, they are able to access them using various circumvention tools such as virtual private networks. And that's where the, the more real conversation is taking place. That's where a lot of questions are, uh, are being asked. Uh, and one of those questions is, is was, was this real? Was this possibly a ploy? And this question is being asked both by supporters of Vladimir Putin and his special military operation and opponents of the Kremlin. And, and one reason for that is because for, for many years what's been happening in Russia it, it's been shrouded in secrecy. And time and again what Russian media and officials told their audiences in Russia, it turned out to be, well, untrue. Let's pick up on that ploy potential that you touched on there, Vitaly, because that's what a lot of our viewers, Justin, and our readers of, of the website have been asking. Could this be a ploy to redeploy Prigozhin and his Wagner forces into Belarus so they could then potentially have another attempt at a lightning strike on Kiev, which lies to the south of the Belarusian border? And we know we've seen in recent weeks and months that those Wagner fighters have been incredibly effective. It took a long time for them to succeed in Bakhmut, but they eventually did it. Could this be part of a, a longer-term tactic, do you think? I mean, it's the most extraordinary way to achieve that outcome. It's the most convoluted possible way. And I think some of the, um, the supporters of Vladimir Putin as you know, this 3D master chess player, which is a reputation I think that hasn't survived um, certainly the last 18 months, um, are trying to argue this is a very complicated way of having a purge and then moving these people to Belarus. I mean, you could do it much more secretly and quietly and draw much less attention to that move in other ways. Plus, at the moment, it's completely unclear um, where the Wagner group 
fighters are actually going. There's no indication they're going to Belarus. It's just that that's what bogosian has been offered, although whether or not he's even gone there is, is a separate issue or going there. Uh, he's rather disappeared at the moment. So, you know, I think that's a very convoluted explanation that's doing the rounds because a lot of uh, Putin fans are trying to explain what's happened and find some meaning in it, frankly. And I, I think they're probably trying too hard to find meaning. If you wanted to create that threat, it'd be much easier to move those troops around in smaller numbers, you probably draw less attention to it and actually create surprise. There's no surprise if they're very obviously being moved there. That said, there is an issue in Belarus, or two issues in Belarus, one for Ukraine and one for Belarus itself. It is potentially a jumping off point for a new front. And I think if uh, Ukraine were to break through in the south, it's one of the final cards that the Kremlin potentially holds is to commit something from Belarus to draw off attention to that area. So Ukraine can't ignore it. But also Belarusian stability is very fragile indeed and actually there's need to prop up the regime there and russia's done that with some troops placed there um so lukashenko himself is, is actually looking for support i think at this time because he is pretty fragile uh, and belarus itself very much in play particularly over the last 24 hours the belarusians fighting for ukraine saying it's time to do something in belarus we need to you know remove the regime there so i think right to have attention on belarus but i just don't see a strategy in this to create a military advantage so on that basis then, Jade, if all these events are genuine as we've seen them play out, this interplay between Prigozhin and Putin and also with the Russian military and, and Sergei Shoigu, does this then give Putin an opportunity to dispose of Prigozhin, to get rid of him and, and remove him from the picture? Putin has long had um, that opportunity, but, gen I mean, but generally Prigozhin has had more use, um, or at least he's been perceived in that way, because there are different roles that he plays. Of course, first of all, you have Wagner, which as an offensive force has proven itself to be effective, certainly more effective than the Russian, the traditional Russian military. But secondly, as well, he provided, I suppose, a bit of an outlet for some of the angry, what are called, what are called in Russian, um, the angry patriots. So some of those who were not happy with how the war um, was being laid out, how the war was being waged, um, and who were critical of, of the policy. And it allowed people, I suppose, to remain critical of the policy, but not to become too critical of the leadership. Clearly that Rubicon, if not entirely passed, um, certainly was almost definitely passed um, yesterday. So the extent to which um, that will continue to be, the provision will continue to be useful for that, of course, is, is well, it's probably already answered, but that anger will still be there, that anger at how the war is being waged um, un ineffectively, so it's not necessarily that the war is being waged, um, that will still be there and that tension within society among, particularly among nationalist groups who largely sided, um, overwhelmingly sided um, with um, Wagner yesterday as well. There are all of these different elements bubbling up under the surface um, and they tend to be armed and they tend to be heavily motivated with one way of keeping a lid on them to a certain extent. Um, so I would be I would be skeptical. I mean, I'm not. It's, of course, it's not within the realms of possibility. You know, people die in mysterious circumstances in Russia, particularly if they're a threat to the leadership. But um, I would I would be skeptical of thinking that that's that's definitely going to happen simply because. Um, there are other, there are many other forces at play, and simply removing Prigozhin doesn't necessarily remove a lot of the issues, um, you know, that for which Prigozhin is the figurehead. And it was interesting, Jade, whilst Vladimir Putin was facing a, a challenge of some degree from 
Prigozhin and his PMC Wagner that at the same time another PMC and its leader leapt to the support of Vladimir Putin. That was in the form of the Chechen leader Kadyrov and his fighters. And so, as we mentioned with Justin, it's worth remembering that there are still other allies that Putin has, of course, and there are other PMCs still in operation. Yes, definitely. And also, I think it's interesting um, to think that the situation was resolved um, just as um, the, the Chechen fighters um, were coming close to, I think they just reached the outskirts of sort of Rostov-Nodonu and Rostov-Nodonu, sorry. And um, that would have been, that could have caused a lot of issues because basically you would have had Wagner um, you know, who who have some popularity um, among um, Russian people fighting Chechens, where among ethnic Russians, Chechens are not universally um, popular, and there's certainly tension within nationalist groups and nationalist attitudes have been have been growing um, during the, during the war, and ethno nationalists, I mean, mm. and um, I think that could have led to, and um, I think that could have led to a very um, unpredictable and, and unpleasant situation if if um, they had come um, to actually fight one another. Justin, you were nodding along there whilst Jade was speaking. Your, your thoughts on that situation? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I agree completely. I think the optics of that were difficult. Um, and it all drew effort away from the front lines as well. So the Chechens, the Akhmats were, were pulled away from where they were near Donetsk to be the reaction force. And again, it is so telling that the reaction force to this incident um, you know, was, was the Chechen Guard battalions, which really have not been substantially committed to fighting at any point. I think there are doubts over how effective they really are. They're very much a political force for the pro-Moscow Chechen leadership um, elements. And there was nothing else really to commit. And I think what it did show as well is actually how weak the defense of Russia is, which the Russians fighting for Ukraine have crossed the border in the last couple of months a few times on raids have sort of shown that there is no real defense inside Russia because so much of the Russian military effort, I mean, nearly all their conventional ground forces are committed uh, to fighting in Ukraine, and there just is nothing else in the tank. So that in itself kind of highlighted just how little there was to, to deal with a situation like this. And I think it certainly added to the urgency of resolving this situation uh, before it got out of hand. It was becoming um, a lose-lose situation for all parties in Russia, and I think that, that brought that to an end. But again, to me, that really um, undermines the idea that this was somehow planned, it was contrived to bring opponents of the regime into the open. It may have done that, and Putin isn't an opportunist, and he, he sees the opportunity in this, um, but he's juggling all the things that Jade mentions, all of these different factions, um, and overall they have to be weaker, I think, as a result, just pulling away what they can from the front line. It's now got to go back. Everyone's attention at the front line distracted, um, and of course, if you're a Russian soldier at the moment, facing the Ukrainians and behind you is absolute chaos emerging and you're learning bits of it on Telegram and people you respect like Prigozhin and Penchi Wagner who fought hard and been on the front lines are telling you the entire war is being fought on a lie and being fought badly um, as well. Your morale is not going to be high. So none of this helps the Russian forces in any way.